Will you pray with me? God of unveiled truth, faithful flame in times of darkened sun and waning moon, lift up our unknowing hearts, waken our sleeping love to announce the coming dawn of unexpected peace. Through Jesus Christ, the one who is to come. Amen. I owe a great deal of gratitude to a certain frequent 8.30 a.m. worshiper who introduced me to an author named C.J. Box. C.J. Box has written a series about a Wyoming game warden named Joe Pickett. And there's a multi-book series about Pickett's life out in the wilds of that place. Now, for me, every page in that series has been an absolute page-turner. I've struggled to put them down. Each story building on themes, on narratives, or characters from past novels. Now, everyone here in this room has something that's captured you like that. Something you've fallen in love with. A riveting story in which the author has crafted a narrative that grabs your attention. And no matter what else is happening in the world, that story just simply won't let you go. What are those books for each and every one of you? For some, it may be C.S. Lewis's Narnia, Mere Christianity, Screwtape Letters. For some, it may be Barbara Kingsolver's latest Demon Copperhead, which was absolutely riveting. I've raced through everything published by Angie Thomas, most famously known for penning The Hate You Give. Fleming Rutledge is known as an author some of us simply just can't get enough of. But how many of us would name the Gospel of Mark as one of those stay up until 3 a.m.? Because you've got to finish it tonight, page turners. No hands? No hands. Well, friends, Mark wrote this gospel to be just that, an absolute stunner. Now, there's a word in Greek called chi. Say it with me, chi. Kappa, alpha, iota. And that word is translated as and then suddenly. If you see chi in a sacred text... It's being utilized to express a sense of urgency, an immediacy in the story that's being conveyed. Now, let's imagine that we're watching football together. And if there is a football player on our team that is broken away from the pack, and it looks like they're going to score the winning touchdown, you might, or someone you might know, might yell at the TV, Go! 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 Okay? Now, imagine that we're all Greeks 2,500 years ago, at a chariot race. And the chariot race and the rider that we have all, you know, collectively put our bets behind or something like that, uh, is pulling away from the pack. We might all be yelling, Kai, Kai, Kai. Now, it may not be an exact translation, but now you understand the urgency. Now you understand the action behind the word. And the author of Mark uses the word Kai for all of you English teachers in the room as a parataxis to convey to the reader a sense of urgency. Now there are 400 and, or excuse me, there are 678 verses in the book of Mark. 678. 
410 of them begin with the word chi. Another Greek word, euthus, which is translated as immediately. Yeah, I know, that's funny. That's good math. Youthless is translated as immediately. That's used 11 times in the first chapter alone of Mark. And then 30 other times throughout the rest of the book. When Mark tells us that John the Baptist prepared a way in the wilderness for the revelation of God to enter the world, Mark wants us to know that John did that immediately. John did that with great passion. John did that urgently. And Mark wants us to do that with our lives also. Now, an amazing man that I have known my entire life died earlier this week. He was a godfather of sorts for me, a man named Harold Shootmaker. He was active in our local church growing up, an attorney that worked for the freedoms of both citizens as well as freedoms for the environment. We attended the small liberal arts, the same small liberal arts college, Kalamazoo College, though some 30 odd years apart, but we were able to bond there through alumni networks and common relationships and experiences. If there's anyone I know who lived his life with a Markan urgency, personally preparing a way for the goodness of Christ to enter the world, it was Harold. Harold was an influential political figure, a community builder, a mover and a shaker, and he used that cachet that he had rightly earned for the common good. I remember being an elementary-aged student, and the teacher asked everyone in the class if we knew someone that was famous. And my hand jerked up into the air, and I proudly said, I know Harold Shoemaker. A strong man of faith, Harold worshipped every Sunday with a clear desire to encounter God, but also with a whimsy that made everyone feel welcome even though he was such a powerful and influential person in our community. He was great to worship with because he, just like many of us, had our favorite hymns. And you know what? If we sang one of those favorite hymns, the volume for Harold would escalate, right? But if a hymn that was selected that might have been perhaps new to the congregation, or maybe we just didn't sing all too well, well, he would look at you and make a face like, why are we singing this? I've learned that it's very hard to make that same face while I'm sitting up here in the chancel. Harold's commitment to public service extended to his role as the longest-serving district chair of the Republican Party in the state of Michigan. Commitment. His urgent preparing-away vision included incredible projects like setting aside large tracts of land for conservation and preservation. Harold provided legal expertise for one of the first rail-to-trail projects in the country, turning an abandoned stretch of railroad between Kalamazoo, Michigan, and Lake Michigan into the award-winning Cal Haven Trail, a project where Harold literally helped make straight a path in the wilderness. 
These were not endeavors that Harold merely just did for fun. They were chapters in a story of dedication to the betterment of the community around him. But Harold knew that these projects were also for the community that was yet to come. His grandchildren have ran high school cross-country races along the Calhaven Trail. His daughter, inspired by his leadership and active participation, has served in the Michigan House and Senate. His firm actually changed names often because he kept doing such a great job mentoring young attorneys that they would end up so successful, they'd leave because they had their own pet projects to pursue. Just like John the Baptist, Harold knew that something far greater than he was on the horizon. And Harold was so excited to see whatever the Spirit was going to reveal. I've shared with you some of the life story of a man who helped shape me in ways that really, after a week of reflection, I still don't even fully know just yet. But a wise man in this room once said that faith is the life lessons that we cultivate together in church. And if that is true, then much of my faith has been cultivated by Harold Shoemaker. But the author of Mark wasn't merely speaking about Harold when these words were written to describe the urgent joy that John displayed when heeding the call to prepare. Mark is speaking to all of us, encouraging us with great haste to live lives that prepare the way for this new thing that Christ is doing in the world. And I want to transition into a bit of brief church history that I pray helps shape our shared future together. Earlier this sermon, we all imagined for a moment that we were Greeks at a chariot race. Now we're going to do something different, and we are going to imagine that we are the Roman church evangelizing the Isle of Britain around the year 650 A.D. Now a key aspect of that evangelizing effort is that the church would build small churches in rural outposts. These would be tiny buildings, small, small churches, often sharing clergy with neighboring towns, foreshadowing the yoked parishes that we see so often throughout our denomination today. And these outpost rural churches would care for the people, would share the good news, be the hub of the faith life within that community, but they would barely be able to support themselves. They needed better infrastructure. And so the church would also build larger institutions, communities of faith where there were more resources, perhaps multiple clergy, a library of sorts, whatever they could finagle, different energy. And these would be placed in well-established municipalities, cities, and these larger institutions would help and support the smaller, more rural congregations. Often, these larger church institutions would be in more populated areas, and they would then foster ecclesial relationships among the other churches in an attempt to urgently prepare a way. And do you know what those larger faith institutions were called? 
They were called minsters. Minsters. Now, you may have traveled the world and been to some large faith communities with minster in the name. They're common all, of course, or all, all across England, of course. York Minster, Southwell Minster, an abbey in London whose name I simply adore, Westminster. But the point, friends, is that these larger churches with unique and extraordinary resources were created not just for the people who worshipped there, not just for the community in which they were planted. These minsters were created to help support other communities of faith, to foster relationships across boundaries with entities that perhaps had different means, maybe even different agendas, but were no less faithful, no less dedicated to following the risen Christ. Now, our Westminster was not built in the year 650 to support rural English churches. But that is who we were named after. And that theme has to be fulfilled. Preparing, fostering something greater and greater. And in fact, dearly beloved, the initial meeting to organize Westminster Presbyterian Church was held exactly 84 years ago today, December 3rd, 1939, with the Reverend Frederick Haverkamp and 15 people attending. And I have to say, it looks like we've grown. Can you imagine 15 people? McCormick's, what a voting block you would be. You would be a third of the congregation. I never had the chance to meet the Reverend Frederick Haverkamp, but I wonder if his vision for Westminster was 15 members and no church building. This is, of course, where they began. Perhaps a more interesting question is, what did those original 15 members of this church have in mind about the future of this place? What were the minster ways that they were preparing for? Well, what I'm sure of is that, in part, they were preparing for us. For just three years later, in 1942, those 15 and a bunch of their friends moved into this building. And then ten years after that, a bunch more of their friends moved across the way, over there, into the sanctuary, and that building. And that pattern of growth, that pattern of vision, that pattern of preparing a way for what is yet to come has continued on and on and on. And now we are given the sacred task of carrying that legacy into the future. And so I wonder, friends, in this season of Advent, when people of faith across the globe anticipate the new thing that God is going to bring into the world. What is it that we are called to prepare together? I wonder what is that new thing that's coming that we need to urgently and actively help bring to fruition. I wonder both 2,084 years in what the Kai is in our collective lives that says suddenly go, that says immediately prepare, that says, urgently act because something is coming. 
And that something is so far greater. Harold Shootmaker knew it. Fred Haverkamp knew it. Those original 15, they knew it. John the Baptist knew it. And as these lit Advent candles remind us, friends, so today, so too do we. Amen.